This morning we're going to begin our series in uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. That's why it's, or the letter to the Corinthians. Um, it's a real letter written to real people in real time. It's a historical document um, in that way. And so I, I, it's important to me that we place it in history, in place, in time, that we see it not, not just as like this piece of paper, but as a, as a real thing that happened to a real people. Um, and so I want us to start by talking about the city of Corinth and where it's at. So um, one thing to know about Corinth is that it was a trade city. And we can see this pretty easily in its geography. If we look at uh, a couple maps here, I've got. So this first one, just to give you a big picture, it's in Greece. So you can kind of see where it's at in Greece. If we go a little closer... Um, you can see that it actually sits on this part of Greece that it narrows to just a four-mile wide stretch of land. And so any trade that had to happen between this lower part of Greece and the rest of Europe had to pass through Corinth. So it was an important north-to-south land trade route. But it was also an important east-to-west trade route because ships really didn't want to sail around the, the, the uh, Cape of Malaya. Nowadays, it's known as Cape Matapan. At the time, it was known as Cape Malaya. And so they could either go around Cape Malaya, which would be a 200-mile trip, or they could get to Corinth and take that four-mile stretch of land and drag ships across it if they were small enough, or park the ships, unload the cargo, cart the cargo, the four miles, to the other side, load it onto a new ship. And that was worth it to most people because Cape Malaya was the most dangerous cape in the Mediterranean Sea. It was talked about, uh, it was something that was feared. There were two sayings that were common among the Greeks when they talked about Cape Malaya. The first was, let him who sails round Malaya forget his home. The second was, let him who sails around Malaya first make his will, right? So people did not want to do this. People did not want to do this. They didn't want to go around, so they often went through Corinth, either dragging boats over the land or just taking the cargo from one ship, putting it on another ship on the other side because it was so dangerous to go around this cape. Eventually, they would build a canal. They actually talked about building a canal for centuries. It started the first person to... Uh, propose it was in the 7th century BC that they talked about digging a canal here. Uh, Emperor Nero tried it. He started, broke ground on the canal. He was the first one to break ground on the canal um, in AD 67 using 6,000 Judean prisoners of war after uh, the, the Jewish-Roman war that happened at that time. And the modern canal was not completed until 1893. So nowadays, there is a canal. You can kind of see in this, you see that blue line. That's a canal that runs through there. And it's still a trade route to this day, an important trade route to this day. As a result of all this trade, nearly all, Corinth, nearly all Greeks passed through Corinth at some point in their life. At some point in their life, some, every Greek, nearly every Greek passed through Corinth at some point in their life. It was just such a big city to come through. And as a result... Nearly all cities like this throughout history, no matter where you go on the map, 
If it's just a big trade city, it's a big commercial city, there's a lot of transients, um, there's a lot of uh, wealth that's happening there, commercial prosperity, it was also a wicked city, right? You know that this is going to happen when you have this kind of transience and commercial prosperity. It became known for debauchery and drunkenness. Sailors and tradesmen were always passing through the city, you know, apart from wives, apart from families, looking for a night of debauchery, and they found it in Corinth. Greeks are obviously famous for their plays, right? You know that, that you've heard of Greek plays, Greek tragedies, all these kind of things. In any Greek play, if there was a Corinthian character, he would be depicted as drunk. That was like the stereotype. If you were going to play a Corinthian character on stage, you played him drunk. It was so well known that that's what Corinth was known for. There was a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite that stood on the hill over uh, on the Acropolis overlooking the city of Corinth. This temple housed around 1,000 prostitutes who every evening, sacred prostitutes uh, to Aphrodite, who every evening would come down the hill and ply their trade in the streets. So it was a city that was known for all of this sinful behavior. I mean, it was, it was the place to go. It's kind of like what we think of Las Vegas probably. You know, they probably had a, hey, what, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, huh? You know, that kind of thing. Like, hey, this is what it was known for. It was also a really diverse city. Corinth was a city with a diverse population. It had been actually destroyed by the Romans during their conquest, um, but it had been rebuilt in 46 BC by, uh, by Julius Caesar. And it became founded as a Roman colony. So as the Romans would spread throughout Europe and you know, spread all over and, and, and establish their empire. They would establish these Roman colonies. And one of the ways that they then held this land was by taking these Roman soldiers who had served their time. They were Roman veterans. They would retire. They would be granted a piece of land in one of these Roman colonies and sent to live there. It was how, how they helped to establish a Roman presence throughout the empire. So Corinth was no different. It had many Roman veterans who lived there and were landowners as a result. There were also merchants from all over. The commercial supremacy attracted merchants from all over the world, including a significant Jewish population. That Jews came from Israel to live in Corinth and to ply their trade. They also had Phoenicians, Phrygians, people from the Far East who settled there with their exotic customs. And I want us to keep this in mind as we study 1 Corinthians, the fact that this city was known for wealth and luxury, drunkenness, immorality, vice. The fact that a church was founded there is a significant, significant evidence of the power of the gospel. But the church was in its infancy. This wasn't like, oh, we've got a lot of resources to send there. This is a one of the very first churches was founded in this city. And I want you to imagine Paul walking into this city. And he arrives from Athens. He comes to this city. He sees all of these things happening. He sees people drunk in the streets. He sees merchants selling all of these goods. He sees boats being dragged across land to the other side. Boats being unloaded with all this cargo from all over the world. 
sees all this prosperity, sees the prostitutes coming down from the temple of Aphrodite in the evening. And he goes, I'm going to found a church here. Man, that's not what any of us would think. It's not the place. It's not the place. This is not the place for this. And yet he does it. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to get into 1 Corinthians next week. And what we're going to see is that 1 Corinthians is a letter about relationships. Relationships within marriages and families. Relationships within the church itself. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. So he's talking about how do we interact with one another within the church. But also how does the church then interact with non-believers, those outside of the church. And then how do we have a relationship individually with Jesus, but also how do we collectively have a relationship with Jesus? What does a relationship look like collectively as the people of God with Jesus? We're going to get into the letter next week, but we're going to start this series in Acts chapter 18. We're going to look at Paul's actual founding of the church in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. This occurred during Paul's first missionary journey. He was in Corinth from around AD 51 to 52 is when this started, and we're going to see that it began with some key relationships. We'll look first at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks." So this is Paul's first missionary journey. This would take years that he's going on this journey. It's not a short-term mission trip, right? He's going for years. He's spending years founding these churches, going from city to city. There's a little map in your study guide if you want to see kind of what, what his route was like. But he's just come from Athens. He arrives in Rome and, I mean, he arrives in Corinth and he's got to figure out what to do first. Again, imagine him getting, getting there and and kind of looking around and going, boy, what, where do I start? And he starts by making some friends, right? He goes to the commercial district. He finds some tent makers because he's a tent maker. He's got to make some money because he doesn't have a lot of support. Occasionally he gets support from other churches, but most of the time he's having to work and support himself. And so he finds Aquila and Priscilla, these tent makers. And he comes to them and he goes, you know, starts up a conversation, finds out they're Jews as well. They actually got kicked out of Rome by the emperor, and so they came to Corinth. They set up shop as tent makers. Paul strikes up a friendship with them and says, hey, I'm a Jew as well. You're a tent maker, I'm a tent maker. How about I don't compete with you? I can just come work with you. And he came and he worked with them and he started a relationship with them and, and talked to them. And they're not believers yet. Right? They're, not, they're not Christians yet. We don't have a record of that conversation, but he obviously shares the gospel with them, tells them about Jesus, convinces them through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. And they start this relationship. He becomes friends. His first thing that he does when he comes to this new town is to make a few good friends and share the gospel with them. 
That's his first, that's step number one. Step number two is that he visits the synagogue. He visits the synagogue every Sabbath, that's Saturday, and he tries to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah through the scriptures. He's going, opening the scriptures, and you know, maybe he starts off even just sitting and listening and going like, oh, hey, you just read that from Isaiah. Um, I actually, actually that, I, that was been fulfilled. That prophecy has been fulfilled. I, I know the guy. I know the guy. I can tell you all about it. And he starts telling them about Jesus being the Messiah that they've all been waiting for. Paul always preached to the Jews first in every town that he entered. This was not just a comfort thing, right? Obviously, it's easier for him to interact with people that are of his same tribe. But it's not just that. It's actually a theological principle for him that the gospel should go to the Jews first. The Messiah was born from the Jews. He was preached to the Jews. He belongs to the Jews first and foremost, they're still God's chosen people. He goes to the Jews first every time. He says this, explains this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's for the Jews first. Jesus demonstrates the same thing when he first sends his disciples out. The very first time he sends them out to proclaim the good news, he sends them out in Matthew Chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sends them out, he sends them to the Jews first. He says, just go to the Jews, proclaim the gospel to them, proclaim the fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the Messiah has come. Paul explains also further, in, and we get further in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, that there's a greater responsibility that comes with this privilege. It says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Israel is God's chosen people. We must never forget that Israel is God's chosen people, that he's not done with them, that he will fulfill every promise that he made to them. We'll look next here at a couple more relationships. Verses 5 through 11, Silas and Timothy. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Silas and Timothy, some old friends of Paul's, arrive in Corinth. They'd actually been with Paul pretty recently. Uh, but due to persecution, Paul had to leave town in a hurry uh, and, and come to Corinth. And so Silas and Timothy, they're kind of trailing behind. They're finishing up some stuff. 
They're, they're meeting people, kind of shoring some stuff up, and now they're going to come. And it shows just how committed they are. They're not afraid because of, uh, of the, the persecution that Paul brings on himself. Right? It'd be very easy to imagine Paul, Silas and Timothy going like, let's not hurry to catch up with Paul. You know, because Paul stirs it up everywhere he goes. He stirs it up with the Roman authorities. He stirs it up with the Jewish authorities. Everybody gets mad at Paul. Paul gets beaten and run out of town all the time. It doesn't seem to happen as often to all the other disciples, or all the other apostles and the other, the other Christians that come through. Like, it doesn't seem to happen as much. Silas and Timothy are, can hang back. They can stay there. They're not going to get run out of town the same way Paul will. But Paul brings the trouble. Right? Paul's the one, he's the loudmouth, he's the one that's stirring it up. And so Silas and Timothy, you know, like I can imagine them just kind of going, you know what, maybe we skip Corinth. You know, maybe we, we got some stuff to do, like we could do some stuff over here, like why don't we go on our own? We could do quiet, it's not going to grow as much, but it's going to be good, and like we'll be good. No, but they catch up with Paul, they're committed to him, they love him, they're friends with him, they, they want to see him. And, and verse 5 it's phrased kind of strangely even in the Greek, but it, it kind of implies that they probably brought with them a gift from the church, from one of the churches, probably the church at Philippi, because uh, that was one that really loved Paul and they were really str- kind of a strong church. And they probably brought a monetary gift that allowed Paul to then be occupied with the word. This is why it says, when they arrived, Paul was then occupied with the word. Uh, it's, one of, it's one possibility for what that, that means. It seems pretty likely because Paul had, again, he worked through relationships. And you can imagine even, even that fact, the idea that Paul ever received missionary support, which most of the time he didn't, most of the time he was supporting himself, but occasionally he would receive support from some of the other churches that would come in. That's, that's like incredible that that would happen. You know, that makes sense to us because we support missionaries, we support missionaries here at Discovery Hills, we send money every month or, you know, however, on a regular schedule to support missionaries who we've committed to support, and they know that. And it's not weird for them to come and even ask, for them to come and say, hey, I'm going to go do this mission. Will you support me? We all go, yeah, we understand what's happening. But you understand that when Paul, like, goes to the church of Philippi, or if Timothy and Silas come and they go, hey, Paul's doing a new church, he's doing a new mission in... uh, in Corinth, you, you want to support that. That's a new idea. No one's ever done that before. Like, think about that. He had to explain what that even was, even what, what it even means to be a missionary. That's a brand new idea. They're like, oh, Paul's going to be a missionary. A what? I don't, a flim-flam? I don't know what that means. You just said a gobbledygook word, right? They're asking for support, and, and the church responds because they love Paul. Because Paul invested his time with them because he shared the good news with them and he built relationships with them. They want to support him. That's why Paul starts this whole system of missionaries even being supported by churches is because of his love for the church. Again, we see this priority of relationships, his relationships with Silas and Timothy, his relationship with the established churches that is key to what he does. Now, because Paul is now able to preach even more and spend more of his time proclaiming the gospel, um, he 
gets opposed, right? They could no longer tolerate his preaching, so they actively oppose and revile him. They've had enough, right? At first, he was only coming on the Sabbath. Now he's coming every day. He's telling everybody. He's stirring this up. They've got people coming and going like, oh, no, I know you said Paul's crazy, but he made some good points. Like, can you tell me about this? And the, the, the leaders, they're just, they had enough. They're done with him. They're actively opposing him now. They're like, we're done being polite. Paul, stop talking. And so he shakes his garments out, right? It says he shook his garments out, which is like um, a modern equivalent would be like, I wash my hands of this. Paul's saying like, I, I'm done. I'm innocent in this. I've explained to you that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. I've showed you how that's true. You know the truth. If you reject it, that's on you. I'm done here. And so he shakes his garments out. He's ready to move on. He's ready to take the gospel now to the Gentiles. And he's following the pattern of Jesus here. In, in John's introduction to his gospel, he explains that this was Jesus' pattern as well, that he comes first to the Jews. John chapter 1, 11 through... What does that say? Acts, that's weird. Um, John chapter 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own... And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were, not born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but the will of God. Jesus came first to his own people, but then when they did not receive him, he went to others. And he gave them the right to become children of God. Paul's doing the same. He came to the Jews first. Now he's ready to go to the Gentiles. And so Paul goes, okay, fine. I'm going to shake my garments out. I'm leaving the synagogue and I'm going to go somewhere else next door. He moves next door to the house of a man named Titius Justice. This is an interesting guy, Titius Justice. He's, he's an interesting character because he is not a Jew, but he's like a fan of the Jews, right? He's, he lives next door to the synagogue and he's like, just starts going over there and talking to them and worshiping Yahweh. It says he loved God. He starts worshiping Yahweh. He starts learning all this stuff and, and he's, he's learning the scriptures. He's hearing about this Messiah that's coming. He's listening to the law of Moses. He's listening to the prophets. He's learning all this stuff. And then this guy named Paul shows up and tells Everybody, the Messiah is here. Let me prove it to you. Look at the scripture. Look at the scripture. Here's what Jesus did. Here's who Jesus was. And Titus Justice got to be thinking like, I got into this Yahweh thing at the perfect time. Like, what a better timing could I have? The Messiah is here. I just got, I just got involved. But he believes Paul. He understands from his reading of the, of the scriptures, this is obvious to him. He's on board and he lives next door to the synagogue. So when Paul is ready to peace out from the synagogue, he just moves next door. That's hilarious. That's hilarious that he's like, okay, I'll be, if you guys want to keep listening to me, you'll find me right over here. And you got to know that that just flipped, the, the synagogue leaders had to just be going nuts, thinking like, man, he's, we try to get rid of him. He's right there. He just moved next door. That's not helpful. Somebody else who left with him was Crispus, and he says he's one of the, the synagogue rulers. So most Bible scholars believe that the, 
the synagogues in these diaspora towns, right? This was part of the diaspora, the spreading uh, of the Jews scattered throughout the nations. Um, it, the, these diaspora towns would have these synagogues and that would be the center of Jewish life. All of Jewish life would center around the synagogue. They would uh, meet there and, and that would kind of be their local political leaders would be these synagogue rulers. And most Bible scholars believe that each synagogue would have around like 10 of these synagogue rulers. Crispus is one of them in, in Corinth here. And he believes Paul. So he defects. He leaves this. Paul caused a synagogue split. Right? He, he causes this, this division. A bunch of people come with him, including Crispus, one of the synagogue rulers, which he had to give something up to do this. Right? He had this distinguished distinguished position as a synagogue ruler. He gives that up to go with Paul. He had to really believe to go with Paul because he was giving up something significant, something that certainly mattered to him. He was probably proud when he became a synagogue ruler, but he gives it up. And many other Jews and Gentiles in Corinth believe, and thus the church in Corinth is born. So we see that, again, these relationships that Paul has, Paul's relationship with Titius Justice, his relationship with Crispus. These are key elements in founding the church. His relationship with Titius Justice gives him the building to found the church in. Founds it in his house. Crispus gives up his position. He believes Paul so much, believes that Paul loves him so much that he's willing to defect. And he takes all these other people with him And then an interesting thing happens. Like seemingly, this is all good, right? Like he's, he's, got a new, he's got a new place now for the church. He's got a bunch of the synagogue people went with him. He's going to start preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Things seem to be going well. But it says God comes to him and tells him not to be afraid, but to go on preaching. Which means that Paul needed that encouragement, right? We usually don't think of Paul as needing encouragement. We think of him as just this like tough dude who's just like, going around, preaching the gospel boldly, getting beaten, getting run out of town, getting thrown overboard of ships, and just keep going. Right? He's a tough dude. But obviously, he felt these things. Like he had these emotions where he wasn't sure, like, should I stay? Like, this is, this is rough, like, I'm getting oppression, people are getting mad at us. Like, should I keep doing this? And God tells him, keep going. Keep preaching the gospel. Don't be afraid. I have many people in this town who are, are mine that need to know the gospel. Tells them not to be afraid. And we also must not be afraid to preach the gospel and invest our time in difficult people in difficult situations. Look lastly here in verses 12 through 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. You can imagine the 
frustration growing among the, the leaders of the synagogue who hadn't defected as, as Paul opens up the church next door to the synagogue. And week after week, they see fewer and fewer people coming on Saturday to the synagogue and more and more people coming on Sunday to the church. People who come maybe even one week and then the next day they even go over to the, the, the church. They go, yeah, I've had enough. You can't answer my questions. Paul's making good points. I'm out of here. And they just slowly are getting eaten away. They see Paul now bringing Gentiles in, teaching them to worship Yahweh. They're just getting more and more frustrated. They probably had, you know, random attacks happen throughout the year and a half that Paul was preaching there, where they would just be yelling at people, people fighting, people, you know, come and go, like, you can't go over there. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Like, you know, yelling at friends of theirs who had gone over to the church and, and, and spending time with these defectors. They're all, all of these things happen kind of randomly, but now they kind of get it together. They have a united attack. They have a united attack on Paul. They get organized. They bring Paul before the tribunal. Right? They, they drag him before the tribunal, this local Roman court. And they bring an accusation where they tell him that, they, that, that he's, he's teaching them to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And that, that, that even, that, that thing of like, oh, they brought him before the tribunal. That's one of those moments. There's lots, this happens to me all the time when I read the Bible where I go like, come on, give me more details. Luke, what do you mean they brought him before? The, like, they, they ask him to come? Did he go willingly? Or they go, Paul, we'd like you to come before the tribunal. And Paul goes, yes, of course, I'm happy to go. Right? Is that how it worked? Or did they like, you know, put a bag over his head and drag him to the court? They kind of do that in chapter 16. Or like, did they tell him like, listen, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. You know, and Paul's like, okay, all right. Hey, hey, I'll go. All right. You know, we don't know. I wish I knew. But in any case, they bring him to this court. They bring this accusation. They bring him before a man named Galio. Galio is the proconsul of Achaia. And they, he functioned, they, these guys functioned as independent um, administrators of the Roman provinces. So there'd be these Roman provinces, and the Roman Senate would appoint people to serve as these uh, proconsuls over these provinces uh, for one-year terms. So they just kind of be appointed and they'd travel around and they would set up these itinerant courts where they would go from town to town um, and hear cases. And they had um, what's called imperium. They, could, they had ultimate decision-making, right? They could decide anything, including capital punishment. They could do whatever they wanted. And so Galileo is one of these guys and he's in Corinth, and so that's probably part of the United Attack that they decided, like, planned ahead of time. Hey, the proconsul's coming here. The tribunal's going to be here. Now's the time. We get Paul, drag him before them. They'll get him. We don't have to worry about it. Or we can just convince him he's a troublemaker, and, and this will be a problem. But Galileo, Galileo's not having it. Right? Galileo's not interested in this case at all. He's just like, this is not my problem. Because the... The Roman government didn't want to get involved in these kind of squabbles with the people that they governed. They only cared about major crime. 
Right? If it didn't affect the, the peace of the community or the taxes that they could collect, the Roman government's not interested. So Galileo, like Paul starts to defend himself, Galileo interrupts him and throws it out of court. He does it in this really dismissive way that like, um, it kind of reminded me of, of parenting. And I actually thought like, this is a, what he says to the Jews like would be perfect to use with your kids when they bring like, when they're fighting among themselves and they like bring this stuff, you know, where you're like, this is, I don't even understand. You haven't a, a conflict over your like pretend imaginary game. Did you mean like no one's hurt or anything? You're like, wait, did anybody get hit anybody? Like there's any, any, any vicious crime? No. Okay. Then I don't want to be a part of this. So I, I just listen to this and I would suggest like, try using this out. Try, try, try using this next time your kids have this. Listen, I'm going to read it again. I'm just only going to replace Jews with children. If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, children, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Is that great? I want somebody to try it this week. So then we go to Sosthenes. Sosthenes is another, another ruler of the synagogue who, who defected, right, came over to Paul. He probably goes with Paul because he's like, thinks, well, I've got some standing in the community. I was a ruler of the synagogue, like not anymore because I went over to Paul, but like people will listen to me and maybe I could talk to this guy. Like maybe I could get him, Paul off, but he doesn't even need to do that. So you know, they go before Galileo, Galileo dismisses them, they go outside, and they're outside the Roman tribunal, and the mob that drug Paul to the, the tribunal starts to beat Sosthenes. Why? Because they're standing outside of a Roman tribunal, and Paul is a Roman citizen. So they couldn't get away with beating Paul in front of the Roman tribunal. Because Roman citizens had special protection. And if you mistreated Roman citizen, it was a much different story. Like they wouldn't care at all. Beat Sosthenes all you want. He's not a Roman citizen. But Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul invoked his Roman citizenship regularly. There's one example um, just a few chapters earlier in, when he's in the church in Philippi, he gets arrested and he's treated really badly. Like it's not, it's not the way that a Roman citizen should be treated. And listen to what happens, Romans 16. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and they do not now throw us out. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Right, so Paul has been beaten publicly, treated badly, without a trial, uncondemned. And he tells, and, and the magistrates realize the mistake that they've made. So they go to try to be like, just go ahead, go, just get out of here. And Paul's like, I'm not going anywhere. They can come tell me themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. 
Paul invoked his Roman citizenship to his advantage numerous times as he's spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. So Sosthenes is beaten instead as a proxy for Paul. They're certainly angry with him for defecting and angry with him for coming to try to defend them. And so they beat him as this proxy for Paul. We're going to pick up with Sosthenes next week when we start 1 Corinthians. We'll wrap up with this for today. Three takeaways for today's message. How should we then live? Number one, recognize that the gospel spreads best through relationships. It's how, it's how it was meant to spread. It was meant to spread through relationships. Jesus himself spent time, most of his time with 12 guys, building these relationships with these guys because that's how he intended for it to spread. And through personal relationships, those guys would go have relationships with people and spread the gospel through those relationships. It's how the gospel is meant to function. And we're going to see that as we get into 1 Corinthians we see it in the founding of the church in Corinth this week. Number two, be willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. We see guys like Crispus who give up this distinguished title, right? This, this position of power, position of respect and authority. I mean, this was like the status to have in their community. They're, they're a small community of, of Jews living in Corinth. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue, yet he gives it up because of the gospel. What are we willing to give up? What are we willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? And then lastly, as we're going to begin this series, and again, I think 1 Corinthians is a lot about relationships, consider which relationships God would have you pursue as we begin this new year. What relationship, what friendships do you have? What family relationships does God want you to pursue? What connections do you have? And maybe if nothing springs to mind, be praying that God would show you. Be praying that God would show you who he would have you invest your time in this year. Would you bow with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this account of the founding of the church of Corinth. And I pray that as we read Paul's letter to the church coming a few years after these events, God, that you would speak to us just as you spoke through Paul to the church at Corinth, that you would speak speak to us here today. Pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.